Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com gold to schedule your free HR audit. The Dow Jones fell just over 400 points today, led lower by a near 6% decline in Caterpillar. In fact, all of the major stock market indexes finished today in the red, although the percentage loss in the Dow was certainly the greatest. But I think the bigger action took place in the foreign exchange market and in the gold market. We saw rather significant reversals on this reversal Tuesday. We'll see if this reversal has legs or if it's just a one-off event. Earlier this morning, the dollar index got all the way down to 105 spot 05. Remember, I've been talking about 105 as a key level on this podcast for a while, and we got right down to 105 before the dollar reversed. It actually shot up 88 points on the day. It closed at 106.30, a very big reversal. The opposite happening in the gold market, also breaking a four-day winning streak today. In fact, it looked like it was going to be five days up for gold this morning when we were up better than $10 an ounce early this morning. In fact, gold got as high as about $17.90 per ounce. So almost back up to $1,800 after having traded below $1,700, even around $1,780 on the lows. But we reversed and closed near the lows. Gold was off about 10 bucks on the day, settling around $1,764 per ounce. The culprit for the reversal was the huge rise in short-term bond yields. One of the biggest moves up I've seen 
during the entire move on the short end of the curve. And in fact, we have one of the most pronounced inversions to date on the yield curve. Yields on both the 12-month and two-year U.S. Treasury surged above 3%. And in fact, both the 12-month and two-year yields are now higher than the 30-year yield, which is exactly at 3%. I think that's the first time I've seen this so far. The yield on the five-year is 285 and the 10-year 274. So you have the 12-month yield above the five and 10-year yield as well as the 30-year yield. And even if you look at the six-month yield of 2.97, that's above both the five-year and the 10-year and almost the same as the 30-year. Now, what is this yield curve showing you? It shows you that the markets expect now the Fed to continue hiking rates, even though investors recognize that the economy already is in recession or believe that it soon will be in recession. So all the talk of the Powell pivot is suddenly taking a back seat. And the reason is you had a lot of FOMC members throwing cold water on the idea that the Fed is about to start pivoting. And I think the first salvo happened over the weekend with Neil Cash Carey. He appeared on one of the Sunday morning talk shows. Now, this guy is historically the biggest dove on the FOMC. And when this guy spoke, he clearly changed his feathers and sounded like an actual hawk. In fact, this is the most hawkish I've ever heard Neil Kashkari. He pretty much stayed on script that the Fed is committed to fighting inflation and bringing inflation back down to 2%. He didn't seem to care about the economy. He seemed steadfast in his resolve and commitment to get inflation down to 2%. And he said, we're nowhere near there. We got a long way to go. Now, the markets didn't really react to that on Monday, which was a bit surprising. But then today, we had a couple more FOMC members also talking, singing the same song. Nobody's worried about the economy. Nobody at the Fed seems to believe the economy is in recession, or at least they won't acknowledge that it's in recession. They're all on Team Biden, and they are towing the Democratic line. We have the strong economy. Just ignore what's happening with GDP. That's irrelevant. Inflation is the problem, and everybody is committed to bringing inflation back down to 2%, and everybody admits that the Fed is nowhere close to achieving those objectives. And I think it's those words, the combination of all these FOMC people committed to fighting inflation that is causing people to rethink the idea of a pivot or maybe push back the pivot further in time. And so that's why you're seeing both a backup in short-term rates and an aversion in the yield curve because the markets recognize that regardless of what the Fed is saying about a strong economy, their fight against inflation will put this strong economy into recession if it's not already in recession. And in fact, if it is in a recession, the Fed is committed to making the recession worse in order to fight inflation. Now, what the markets still don't know, and that's why the yield curve is inverting and you're not seeing a bigger backup 
in long-term yields is the markets assume the Fed is going to be successful in its fight against inflation, either because it succeeds on its own with the rate hikes or the recession ends up doing the Fed's job for it. The Fed puts the economy in recession and then it's the recession that kills inflation. So either way, the markets think inflation is going away, but the markets are wrong on both fronts. These rate hikes are not going to be sufficient to get rid of inflation. We still have negative interest rates and the Fed isn't even going to come close to getting rates to neutral, let alone positive real rates that would be required to actually fight inflation. And at some point, the economy is going to be so weak that FOMC members are not going to be able to pretend that it's strong. They're not going to be able to shrug off all the evidence of a severe recession. And we are going to get the pivot. I mean, they're going to keep up the pretense and the bluff as long as they can. But ultimately, they're going to have to show their cards. They're going to pivot as best they can. And the markets are going to react, probably not the way most people think, but we will get a severe reaction in the foreign currency markets and in the gold market. Also, one of the interesting things about all the Fed governor's commitment to reducing inflation is they're all committed to bringing the rate back down to 2%. Now, nobody is calling anybody out on the hypocrisy of this because not too long ago, when the Fed first indicated that it would tolerate inflation above 2%, the reason it claimed it was willing to do that was because it now had a new goal of inflation averaging, meaning that instead of having a 2% target year over year, they now had a 2% average target, meaning that if you have several years of inflation below 2%, the Fed needs to have inflation above 2% to make up for that. Now, at the time when Powell announced this ridiculous target, I pointed out just how ridiculous it was by speaking about the very reason that the Fed had a 2% inflation target in the first place, the Fed initially told us that the reason they needed 2% inflation was to make sure there was enough distance between the inflation rate and zero, because apparently, according to the Fed, the worst thing that can happen is that prices come down. And so they needed to have a big enough buffer between zero and the inflation rate just to take out an insurance policy against falling prices. Well, if you had several years where inflation was below 2%, but still above zero, well, you dodged that bullet, supposedly. There's no reason to make up for some loss of inflation not being 2% in some future year by having inflation be above 2%. Just the fact that we didn't have deflation, prices rose, but they didn't fall. That's a win. Now we could go forward. I pointed out it was nonsense to say we have to pay some kind of penalty. We have to make up for the fact that the cost of living didn't rise by enough in a particular year that now we have to have an even greater increase in the cost of living in a later year. But I also pointed out at that time the exact position that the Fed is now in that what happens if inflation really spikes up well above 2%, how do you average it back down to 2%? Well, that would require the Fed having many years of inflation below 2% in order to make up for those years that it's above 2%. Well, is anybody at the FOMC acknowledging the fact that we need to have inflation 
below 2% for a while to make up for 9% inflation? In fact, how many years is the inflation rate going to be well above 2% and how many years would they have to get inflation below 2% in order for it to average 2%? In fact, if prices are already too high, making them go up by another 2% would just add insult to injury. I mean, wouldn't it be good if we got some relief from these high prices? Would it be so terrible if after rising so much for a couple of years that prices dropped a little bit? Well, according to the Fed, no. It doesn't matter how much prices go up, they can never come down. They have to go up again no matter what. That supposedly is a victory over inflation. If we have maybe 10% inflation two or three years in a row, If the Fed could just make the fourth year 2%, somehow that's a victory. Forget about the huge increases before that, as long as they eventually get the increase to only be 2%, they've won. Now, nobody on the FOMC is talking about inflation averaging now. But what's more important is that no one in the media is holding anybody on the Fed accountable. Why not ask Powell? Why not at one of these press conferences, oh, excuse me, Chair Powell, Uh, What happened to the concept of inflation averaging? You were talking about the need to have average inflation of 2% when it was below 2%. And so you said we needed to have inflation above 2% to kind of average out the years when it was below 2%. Well, if that's the Fed's policy, why not stick to it? Don't we need to have many years below 2% to make up for all these years above 2%? Or is there really no policy? Are you just making this up as you go along? Is it heads the Fed wins, tails the country loses when it comes to inflation? We only want to average up low inflation, but we never want to average down high inflation. And also on inflation, I'm hearing a lot more myths about inflation. And one of the big myths is the so-called trade-off that you have between inflation and employment and inflation and economic growth. A lot of people are saying that we need to have an increase in unemployment in order to have a reduction in inflation. This is the so-called Phillips curve, which believes that there's some kind of inverse relationship between the two. But this is false. It is Keynesian nonsense. Forcing people out of productive jobs does not fight inflation. The Keynesians are focused on demand. They think if people lose their jobs, they won't have any purchasing power. They won't be able to buy stuff, and so they'll have less demand. As if inflation is somehow a byproduct of people working and people spending their paychecks. It's not. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
Again, the public doesn't cause inflation. Workers don't cause inflation because they have jobs. And taking away their jobs won't take away inflation. In fact, if anything, having more people productively employed helps to reduce prices. Because when people are employed productively, they are increasing economic output. They are adding to supply. You have greater supply of goods and services, which reflect the output of people working. And when you have more supply, that puts downward pressure on prices. So even if the government is inflating the money supply, putting upward pressure on prices, the free market can offset that by increasing the supply of goods and services. But when people lose their jobs, the supply of goods and services is going to be reduced. And that is going to make inflation worse. You know, the same thing is true with respect to the supposed trade-off between economic growth and inflation. People are saying the Fed has to slow down the economy. We need less economic growth to have lower inflation. Again, that is trying to put the blame for inflation on the private sector. The economy is just growing too fast and that's why we have inflation. No, it's the money supply that's growing too fast. The government is why we have inflation, not the private sector. Economic growth doesn't cause inflation. Again, the opposite. Economic growth can offset the impact of inflation by lowering prices. Again, what does real economic growth do? It means more output. It means the supply of goods and services is increasing and that puts downward pressure on prices. So if the economy slows down and it is less productive and the supply of goods and services is not growing as fast or maybe even contracts, that makes the inflation problem worse in that you have added upward pressure on consumer prices. Now, the reality is if the Fed is going to fight inflation, successfully, you're going to have a big increase in unemployment and you're going to have a bad recession. But that doesn't mean it's the increase in unemployment and the recession that is responsible for the successful fight on inflation. It's not. Those things in and of themselves are not what's driving inflation lower. It's the Fed's inflation battle that is driving inflation lower, but is also driving economic growth lower and unemployment higher, but it doesn't mean those things are related. And the reason the Fed's inflation fight is going to cause a recession and cause a lot of people to lose their jobs is because we haven't had real economic growth. We have had a bubble. What has been the source of the bubble? Inflation. The Fed has inflated a massive bubble. It has kept interest rates artificially low. It has printed too much money. And so we've had a bubble instead of real economic growth. And we've had a lot of jobs that were created in companies that are not viable. Zombie companies that are only alive because the Fed's inflationary monetary policy has keeping them alive. And so if the Fed is going to fight the inflation that it created, it can't do it without pricking the bubble that it also created. So successfully fighting inflation means pricking the bubble that was created by inflation, an economy that lives by inflation, dies by inflation. And we're going to see that because you can't get rid of inflation without getting rid of the phony economic growth and the phony jobs that were a byproduct of the inflation. 
The real problem is going to start when the job losses really pick up and when the recession really deepens, there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Fed to back off and reverse policy. But the economy going into recession and these jobs being lost is the first step to real economic recovery. We can't create a viable economy with real economic growth unless we let this bubble deflate and we've got to get rid of the inflation. So the Fed really does need to fight inflation because pricking this bubble and causing a lot of zombie companies to go bankrupt, causing a lot of people to lose their non-productive jobs so they can seek alternatives, having the whole economy restructure with a healthy foundation is exactly what we need But unfortunately, there is no political stomach to swallow that bitter tasting medicine. And so we're going to spit it out. But that means we're ultimately going to die of an even worse disease because inflation is going to run rampant. It will run away, potentially turn into hyperinflation. And we're going to end up with an even weaker economy with even more unemployment than we would have had had the Fed just stuck to its goal of fighting inflation and actually had the resolve like Paul Volcker to do what it takes. Although when Paul Volcker was around, he didn't need as much resolve because while it was a difficult problem, it was still a surmountable problem because we weren't in the gigantic debt bubble that we're in today. The U.S. economy was much healthier in 1980 than it is in 2022. And so Paul Volcker was able to do the right thing because even though it was painful, it wasn't fatal. But this time, doing the right thing is completely fatal, which is why we won't do it. But doing the wrong thing is fatal too. In fact, it's even a more painful death, even if that death sentence is carried out a little later. Also, I was watching an interview on television earlier today on rising food prices. And the individual being interviewed kept referring to food inflation and how food inflation is such a big problem for consumers. But there is no such thing as food inflation. Talking about food inflation implies that it's the food that is causing inflation. Food prices are just going up and that's inflation. No, it's inflation that are causing food prices to rise. All prices that are rising are rising because of inflation. Now, In a free market economy, prices are determined by supply and demand. And let's say for whatever reason, food prices went up. Maybe there was a big drought that reduced the supply of food. And so food became more expensive. And now people have to pay more money for food. Well, that means they have less money available to buy something else. And so while the price of food might go up, the price of something else will go down because there's less money available to buy those other things. And so demand goes down for those other things. So the general price level is not affected by an increase in the price of food because it's offset by the decrease in the price of something else. The only way the price of everything can go up at the same time is if the Federal Reserve creates more money, if Congress spends more money into circulation, and now people have more money to buy food and they have more money to buy everything else. But it's the money printing that is causing the prices to go up. So it's not food inflation, 
It is just inflation. Again, this is all part of the government's propaganda campaign and the media is helping them spread that propaganda by trying to convince the public that they're the reason that we have inflation instead of understanding that it's the government that causes inflation. In fact, all these stories that you read about how bad inflation is and how inflation is doing this and how inflation is doing that, just substitute the government because inflation is an arm of the government. So whatever inflation is doing, the government is doing it. It's like if you're talking about this club and how everybody is being beaten by a club, you have to understand who is wielding that club. In whose hand is that club? Because you're not getting pounded by the club. The club is just an inanimate object. It's the person holding the club that is pounding you. And the person that is holding the inflation club is the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve. They're both holding the club and they're beating the public to death with it. When you're running your own business, it's those HR issues that can really kill you. You can get hit with wrongful termination lawsuits, sued for discrimination. You've got minimum wage requirements, all sorts of complex labor regulations. And those HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, comes in. Bambi was specifically created to help small business owners like you. You can get a dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can turn HR from one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to termination. They will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day and do it all for just $99 bucks a month and it's month to month there are no hidden fees and you can cancel anytime so go to bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free hr audit that's bambi.com slash gold spelled bam to the bee.com slash gold moving from inflation to recession because of course the u.s economy is dealing with both let's talk about some of the weak economic data that's already out this week and we're only two days into the week and we still got lots of negative economic data. First of all, the PMI manufacturing numbers for July, we got the final read and they lowered it a tick from the previous forecast of 52.3, it's down to 52.2 and that was a weak number before and now it's even a weaker number. And I think that number is headed sub 50 soon, consistent with inflation. We also got the ISM manufacturing index for July, which was at 53 the prior month. It was supposed to drop to 52.2. It dropped, but actually not by as much as expected. It only dropped to 52.8. So this weak data was actually a bit less weak than expected, but to me, it's still consistent with an economy in recession or approaching recession. But the real bad number from yesterday was the June construction spending. Not a surprise, I've been talking about how weak construction is gonna be. The consensus was for a 0.2% rise, which would have followed a small 0.1% decline in May. Now they actually revised May's down 0.1 to up 0.1, but 
The June number came out at minus 1.1%. That is much bigger than had been expected. In fact, the low range of expectations was minus 0.4. The upper end was plus 0.5. So we shattered the lower end. But the weaker economic data was actually released today. Earlier this morning, we got the JOLTS numbers for June. And what the JOLTS survey shows you is the number of open jobs available. These are employers looking to hire workers. How many job openings do you have? And we had a huge surge to record highs in the number of job openings following the reopening of the economy. Employers were rushing to rehire workers. And so we saw a huge spike up in the number of job openings. Well, what we just saw for the month of June was the third biggest drop in the number of job openings on record. The consensus was that last month's 11.3 million job openings would decline to 11 million. Instead, we sank all the way down to 10.698 million. Now that's still a lot of job openings, but if you take a look at the chart, and in fact, I tweeted out the chart of the JOLTS index on my Twitter account. And if you look at that, it is basically a straight line surging up from the pandemic lows. And now if you look at it, it looks like job openings are about to fall off the edge of a cliff. And I think we're gonna see a plunge in job openings. I think the job openings are gonna disappear as quickly as they appeared. And that is gonna be a forerunner of mass layoffs which are certainly coming. So first, employers are going to decide they don't need to hire more workers, and they're going to be deciding that very quickly. And then they're going to realize that they don't even need all the workers they have. As a matter of fact, after the stock market closed today, Robinhood, which I think reports earnings tomorrow, today announced 23% of its workers are going to be let go. Now that follows a 9% reduction from, I don't know, a month or two ago, but I've been talking about it, all of these money losing zombie companies in the environment of rising interest rates are not gonna be able to maintain their payrolls and a lot of job losses are coming for companies like Robinhood. And in fact, eventually it's gonna work its way down to real companies because everybody is gonna be suffering in this recession and workers are gonna lose their jobs across the board. And in many cases, the job losses are gonna compound the inflation problem, not only because you have fewer people productively employed, but because you're gonna have the government trying to stimulate the economy with unemployment benefits and stimulus checks. And so we're gonna have the same problem on steroids where we have people not working, but spending even more money. So upward pressure on prices will accelerate as stagflation gets worse. Again, not really stagflation, an inflationary recession that will ultimately be described as an inflationary depression. But even worse economic news was released later in the day by the Federal Reserve when they let us know what the increase in household debt was in the second quarter. And for the first time ever, households have more than 16 trillion in debt. Debt was up 2% on the quarter to 16.15 trillion. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, households have now taken on $2 trillion of additional debt. 
But the reality is much worse because while households themselves took on $2 trillion in debt, the U.S. government took on $8 trillion in debt on behalf of those households because that's how much the national debt has grown. It's almost $31 trillion. But if you look at where it was just before the pandemic started and where it is now, that is an $8 trillion increase. So the U.S. government borrowed four times as much money as all the American households combined. But here is the problem. It's those very American households that are on the hook for the $8 trillion that the government borrowed in their name because the government can't pay its debt unless it gets the money from American households because the government doesn't have any money. It doesn't earn any money. It just spends money. American households are not only on the hook for their debt, but they're also on the hook for the national debt. In fact, you're also on the hook for the debt of your state or your municipality. American families are on the hook for all this debt and there's no way they can pay it off. Americans can't even pay off their own debt, let alone the government debt. That is the reality that no one wants to acknowledge. Now, if there's no way for the government to collect enough tax revenue from broke American households to pay off the debt, how is the debt going to get repaid? It's not. It's going to be repudiated through inflation because instead of getting the money from broke American households that don't have it, the government is going to get the money from the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve, unlike American households, has a printing press and it is going to use that printing press to pay off those obligations, which means those obligations are worthless because the creditors are going to be repaid in money that has very little or no purchasing power. But if you look deeper into that data, credit card debt really surged during the quarter. In fact, year over year, credit card debt is up 13%. That is the biggest year over year increase in credit card debt in 20 years. And what are Americans buying with their credit cards? They're buying groceries. They're buying gas. Even the Federal Reserve admitted that a big part of the increase in credit card use was to pay higher prices. Not to buy more stuff, but to pay higher prices, maybe for even less stuff. That is what's going on. And again, this is further evidence of the weak jobs market. We don't have a strong jobs market. As I said in the last podcast, it doesn't matter about the low unemployment rate. It doesn't matter that wages are going up because only nominal wages are going up. Real wages are collapsing. And so how are workers getting by They're using credit cards to buy stuff because they can't get real raises from their employers because the labor market is so weak that workers can't demand an actual raise. So they have to settle for a pay cut. They're being forced to accept small nominal increases in their pay that are much lower than the actual increase in their cost of living. And so they're making up the difference, one, by depleting their savings. I mentioned on the last podcast that the savings rate is actually the lowest since the financial crisis and Great Recession back in 2008. But not only are people depleting their savings, but they're going even deeper into debt by using their credit cards to make up for what their paychecks can't buy. And finally, I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking about Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. 
She landed early this morning, maybe about a half hour after the U.S. stock market opened. And initially, it seemed like there was a rally when her plane landed without being shot down by the Chinese, as if that means there's going to be no negative consequences for Nancy Pelosi's visit. I'm pretty sure that the Chinese have something up their sleeves and it's not shooting down Nancy Pelosi's plane. They can shoot down our economy a lot easier if they dump their U.S. treasuries and buy some gold. And, you know, they have over one trillion in treasuries. That's a lot of treasuries, especially if they want to sell them now, given what's already happening in the bond market. And given the fact that the Federal Reserve is committed to quantitative tightening, it means the Federal Reserve can't buy what the Chinese would be selling. So the bond market would be crushed. The dollar might be crushed. Gold would go through the roof if, in fact, they took that trillion dollars and used it to buy gold. In fact, that trade is the best thing China can do for itself. Yes, they can inflict a lot of pain on the U.S., but it wouldn't be economic suicide for the Chinese. See, a lot of people think that the Chinese are stuck, that they can't dump their treasuries because it would hurt them too because the value of their treasuries would go down, the value of their dollars would go down, and by crushing the U.S. economy, well, they would also crush their biggest customer. Well, I never bought that nonsense. I think the Chinese would be better off if they stopped vendor financing the United States. It certainly makes sense to dump a trillion dollars worth of treasuries if they can get out. Obviously, those treasuries are paying interest rates that are far below the inflation rate, Ultimately, China is going to get stuck with huge losses on those U.S. treasuries. They can kill two burns with one stone if they get rid of them now. They can avoid those heavy losses. They can take those dollars and buy gold instead while it's still really cheap and use that gold to really shore up their own currency and to assure the Chinese yuan's role in the global economy post the U.S. dollar's loss of reserve currency status. In fact, they can hasten that loss by dumping those U.S. treasuries and buying gold. But again, not only do they help themselves, but they hurt the U.S. if that is in fact what they want to do. But they're not going to hurt themselves in the process. That is a myth. They're going to hurt us. They're going to help themselves. And I think this visit by Nancy Pelosi is certainly a slap in the face to Beijing. Now, why Nancy Pelosi needs to go there is beyond me. What the hell is the purpose of this visit? She is the Speaker of the House of Representatives. She's the third highest ranking U.S. public official. You know, if something happened to the president and the vice president, she becomes president of the United States. She should not be visiting Taiwan. I can't see the purpose of poking this hornet's nest for no reason. Plus, it's costing a lot of money to send Nancy Pelosi and her entourage to Taiwan aboard a private U.S. jet. This is not a time to be wasting money, needlessly sending delegations on political excursions to Asia. This is the time where the U.S. government is supposed to be fighting inflation. The government is supposed to be looking for ways to reduce government spending, not additional ways to waste more taxpayer money that we don't have, money that the Federal Reserve is printing. Supposedly, they're getting ready to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, how about reducing inflation by cutting down on unnecessary expensive trips like Speaker Pelosi's completely unnecessary 
and potentially dangerous trip to Taiwan. Now, I am very sympathetic to the cause of Taiwan, and I think the United States should be in a position to back Taiwan. Unfortunately, we're not. We are actually beholden to the Chinese because we have such a weak economy, because all these years of artificially low interest rates and deficit spending, we've got this huge bubble economy, we now depend on China. China is our biggest banker and our biggest supplier. Our bubble economy cannot exist without the Chinese feeding it. You can't have a service sector economy unless you can import real goods that are produced. And how do we do that? Well, we pay for it with the paper money we print, but that is conditioned on our trading partners accepting it, and the Chinese have been willing to do that. They have taken our paper in exchange for their stuff. But if they stop doing that, our whole house of cards economy comes collapsing down. And that's why we're not in a position to bite the hand that feeds us. It's unfortunate that we depend on China for food, but that is the economic reality. What's amazing is how few people understand that. They actually think the situation is reversed. They think that China depends on us for dollars. But what good are dollars? They're nothing. They're just pieces of paper. And they're going to collapse in value as the Fed keeps printing more and more of them to artificially stimulate the economy. That is clear. As I mentioned before, the Chinese have a trillion dollars in treasuries. Who's on the hook for those? American families, American households. They're supposed to pay off the Chinese, but they can't. As I said, it's impossible. The U.S. government can't raise taxes on American families high enough to repay the Chinese. So we're going to default on the Chinese. How are we going to default? Through inflation. Well, if I could figure that out, so could the Chinese. And maybe the Chinese don't want to wait around for that. Maybe they want to get out of Dodge before the shooting starts. Maybe they want to be one of the first countries to actually unload their U.S. treasuries and then use the U.S. dollars they get when they sell their treasuries to buy gold. Now, if China is actually going to do this, and if they don't do it now in retaliation for the Taiwan visit, they're going to do it eventually. But the one thing you want to make sure is that you front run China. You don't want to dump your dollars and buy gold after China does it. You want to do it before China does it. And so now is a great time. Gold is still below 1800 So give Shift Gold a call and buy your gold before the Chinese beat you to it. And again, if you're aggressive and you want to really take advantage of an increase in the price of gold, you'll take advantage of the huge decrease we've seen in the price of gold mining stocks by investing in that sector, either by purchasing shares in my gold fund, the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund, or by setting up a separate account for us to manage at Euro-Pacific Asset Management, where Adrian Day will manage for you a portfolio of carefully selected gold mining stocks.